It is always a tremendous opportunity that each one of us have when we gather together on the Lord's Day to praise and worship the Lord. It is a privilege that God has afforded to us, and we know that God has always sought those that want to worship Him. And let us then continue our worship as we worship through teaching. In Acts, the second chapter is one of the passages that are found within Scripture that really stand out in a lot of different ways. I remember in school when the teachers would talk about preaching and things like that, they would often say, we should never stray too far from Acts chapter 2. And part of that reason is because it is considered the hub of the Bible. Acts chapter 2, everything in the Old Testament really pointed to Acts chapter 2 when the gospel message of salvation was preached in its fruition and the salvation was offered through Jesus Christ for the first time. And then all the events and all the, the teachings of the New Testament point back to Acts 2. So when the church was first established, you think about all the different things that are taught within the New Testament. It really points back to Acts 2 and the salvation that we have through Jesus the Christ. And so we can see how it is the hub of the Bible. But I think it's also noteworthy to note that the preaching of Acts chapter 2 centers upon Jesus. And so we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at the first part of Acts 2 for just a little bit, and then we're going to go on into the actual sermon itself. You remember in Acts chapter 2, the hub of the Bible, that it began with the apostles on the, on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. Remember, this is only approximately 50 days after Jesus was crucified. That's all we're talking about. We're talking about less than two months after Jesus was crucified upon the cross. It is a Sunday. They're gathered in the city of Jerusalem just as Jesus instructed them, that is the apostles, and Jesus instructed them in Acts chapter 1. While they're in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, a sound of a rushing mighty wind most people believe it would be the sound of like a tornado or a hurricane or something like that. Also, the cloven tongues of fire. We've all seen those cloven tongues, and that's how the King James refers to that. You remember the flames of fire that they used to put on the side of a car, and that was a cloven tongue. And that's probably something similar to what they had. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that's really interesting when the people on that occasion in Acts 2 and verse 12, 12 said, What meaneth this? They were really talking about the apostles preaching. They were really talking about the fact that here these are uneducated men and yet they're able to speak in all these different languages of people that are gathered in the city of Jerusalem. And Peter then began to answer that question, what meaneth this, 
in verses number 13 all the way through verse number 21. And basically his answer to it that we're not drunk with wine, which is a ridiculous accusation that some that were in Jerusalem had made, but they also answered it by saying that it was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Now in Acts chapter 2 and in verse number 21, he finished up the prophecy of Joel and he said, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we'll talk about calling on the name of the Lord maybe a little bit later, but nonetheless, for now, that was the conclusion of the defense that Peter gave concerning the, the accusation that was and the question, what meaneth this? Now, beginning with verse number 22 through verse number 36, you have the actual sermon itself. And I divided the actual sermon in, in five different points. The first point is Jesus approved of God. That's verse number 22. Then the second point is Jesus delivered and put to death, verse 23. And then you have a longer point because of the prophecy that are, that's found there. You have Jesus raised from the dead. And then the final point, Jesus exalted, or the next to the final point, Jesus exalted to the throne of God. And the final point is Jesus is both Lord and Christ, which is actually a conclusion. Now notice upon whom did the sermon center? It's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, the sermon centered upon Jesus. And though we don't want to get away from Acts 2 very far, and we want to always go back to it, but at the same time, we need to remember that the sermon centered on Jesus. Now let's go back to the sermon, and let's look at it as a whole, and then break it down and look at it individually. The first point is Jesus approved of God, and that's verse 22, which says, Ye men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs or wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Now, the first thing, it says he was approved of God and he was approved by the miracles and signs or wonders and signs. Now, the word miracle has reference to and I know that people misuse that word today. And I think it is a misuse. They, they talk about phenomenons that happen and they call them miracles. And you've heard different people call different things miracles. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when miracles were performed, they were supernatural events. In other words, they were against nature uh, or above nature. They were over natural events. And so they were supernatural. And that's what we mean by that. We're not talking about just a, an everyday event that takes place and that is spectacular or that is phenomenal. Uh, but we're talking about things that are above nature. They are supernatural. Wonders is a word that simply refers to things that causes wonder. Have you ever seen something and, you, and you, when you see it and you go, <gasps> You know, that's what we're talking about. They call, cause wonder, or sometimes we'll say they cause awe. Could you imagine being with 
the man that was born blind and coming to sight and seeing that phenomenon, more than a phenomenon, that supernatural event, an emphasis there, supernatural event, and then coming to sight, or the lame walking, or the, the dumb being able to hear and to speak once again. Don't you find it interesting? John the baptizer no doubt knew who Jesus was. In fact, there were a number of different occasions when John clearly identified who Jesus was, that he was not even worthy to unlatch his shoe and to, to uh, take care of, of those personal needs like that. And yet when John the baptizer ended up in prison, he sent his disciples to Jesus and he asked Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Well, John already knew the answer to that. I believe that John was discouraged and needed to be reassured of this fact. Now, what did Jesus say? Don't you find it interesting? Jesus did not answer it directly, but he said, you go tell John. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. In other words, John, you know the answer. Look at the evidence. And the evidence clearly points to the fact that Jesus fulfilled Scripture in those ways. Now, signs are a little bit like the idea of a road sign. We all know what road signs are. Road signs give direction or instruction. When you come to a stop sign, it gives you the instruction that you need to stop. A yield sign gives you the instruction you need to yield. A left arrow gives you the, or a right arrow, gives you the instruction to turn right. A left arrow gives you the instruction to, do, to turn left. Well, these then miracles were giving instructions to different individuals. Now, the miracles of the apostles, and that's not what this verse is about, but the miracles of the apostles were to confirm the word. It gave instruction that the, what the apostles taught were truly from God. The signs that Jesus did gave instruction to people that he was the Son of God. In other words, he is confirmed to be the Son of God. So the miracles then show authority over nature. Jesus walking upon the water shows his authority over nature. You also have his authority over the spirit world, him casting out demons, and not just one demon, but many demons, and in one man, actually a legion of demons, and so he was known as legion. So he had power over or authority over the spirit world. He also had authority over death. And I'm a little bit, uh, kind of have always been amused, and I think I probably have made mention of this before about Marshall Keeble. And Marshall Keeble said, you know why he said, Lazarus come forth? Because if he hadn't called him by name, the whole cemetery would have raised. And how true it is. Well, at least partly true because Lazarus was a very common name and there were probably more than one Lazarus in that cemetery but he was talking about a specific Lazarus and that Lazarus was to come forth. Now, could you imagine being there that day and seeing Lazarus come out of that tomb? You think you would have not been wondered at that? That it would have caused awe? Yeah, 
And it would have pointed to the sign that a supernatural event had taken place and it confirmed Jesus to be the Son of God. It was a sign to tell them that Jesus is the Son of God. Now in the second point, we have Jesus delivered and put to death. Look at verse number 23. Him being delivered by determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. Now in looking at this particular passage, it was by the determinate counsel of God. Actually, he says in the text there, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, what we're talking about, this was not an accident that he went to the cross. It was not an act of men. Now, it's important for us to recognize this because many in the religious world, in the sectarian world, in the denominational world, believe in what's called premillennialism. And I've heard members of the church say, oh, it's an innocent doctrine. It's all right. It's, it's not going to make any difference. But they believe that Jesus came to this world, they, that he came to establish his kingdom, failed to do such, and therefore they, he established his church instead. In other words, it wasn't a determinant action of God for Jesus to go to the cross. But you know what? we find quite the contrary within Scripture. In fact, we find completely, completely the opposite. God knew before He created this world that He would send His Son into this world. Now, I don't know about you. I know that's difficult to comprehend that God had, had a predeterminate plan that He would send His Son into this world and die upon that cross even before He said, let there be light. Now that is amazing to me in the fact that God loved me so much that he created the human race knowing that we would depart from him and knowing that he would give his son upon that cross. So it was not an accident. It was not a, uh, an act of men, but it was pre-planned. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, there Peter wrote, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily, now listen, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world that we should, or that, and was manifest in these last times for you, who was foreordained. The foundation of the world is the beginning of time. The foundation of the world is the creation. And yet Christ was foreordained. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that was simply an act of man. There was never a time when Jesus could not have put a stop to it. Now the text actually says that he was killed by the Jews by the hands of the Romans. Or by the Jews by the hands of Romans, yes. However, go over to John the 10th chapter, and I think it's very important for us to recognize this. God allowed the Jews to kill him or to, to sentence him and the Romans to, to uh, kill him. But listen to what Jesus said in John the 10th chapter, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me because I laid down my life. 
Now notice, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Yeah, the Jews put him to death by the hands of the Romans, but Jesus laid down his life, and he had all the authority to lay down his life. He just simply allowed the Jews to do that. So it wasn't an act of nature or act of humanity. And notice he says that not only was he determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, in the previous verse he also noted, and I meant to note this at the, at the other point, that it was, he says, as ye yourselves also know. In other words, this wasn't something done in a closet. It wasn't done in secret. Everybody knew about the miracles and, and wonders and signs that Jesus did. And everybody that were there on the day of Pentecost knew about the crucifixion of Jesus. It wasn't done in secret. Then the next point is that Jesus raised from the dead, verses 24 through 32. In verse 24, Peter said, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make, known, uh, make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ, <coughs> excuse me, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are witnesses. Now, in this particular passage, there are a number of things that to note. The first is that he said that, that uh, he was victor over death. Then he noted that the resurrection was foretold. That's verses 33 to 35. And then the resurrection was witnessed. Just as the people witnessed the miracles and, and wonders and signs, they also witnessed his death and they also witnessed his resurrection. Again, it wasn't something done secretly. It was done where everybody could see. In fact, Paul noted that in 1 Corinthians 15, he noted that 500 brethren at one time saw him. Brethren, we're not talking about something that was done without knowledge. We're talking about something that was done 
that everybody knew about it. And because of what took place on this particular day and the question that they would ask later on, we know that, that Peter was telling the truth. You could just imagine. I mean, it's full of Jews. That's who were gathered in Jerusalem. That's who were gathered on this particular occasion. If they didn't believe it, they would not have asked the questions. They saw Jesus' life. They saw his death. And they saw his resurrection. And they were convinced of sin. Now, an interesting question that we ought to ask is, well, who raised up Jesus? It is interesting that in verse number 32, that the Father, and that's what this verse says, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. But we already noted that in John 10, verses 17 and 18, that Jesus had power to lay it down, and he had power to take it up again. But then we notice over in Romans, the 8th chapter, in verse 11, that the Spirit raised up Jesus. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had a part in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now the next point is verses 33 through verse number 35, where it is said that he is exalted to the throne of God. Now in verses 33 through 35, the text says, Therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, until I make thy footstools, uh, thy foes, thy footstool. So he is exalted to the throne of God. In fact, the text says, and, and he emphasized this particular point three different times that he is exalted to the right hand of God. Look at, look at the text there itself. And notice in verse number 33, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. In verse number um, 34, he said, uh, the Lord said unto my Lord, set thou on my right hand. And then earlier in the text, in verse number 25, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Three times emphasized that he was on the right hand of God. Now the right hand of God is a place of prominence. It's a place of honor. People are exalted to that right hand. And it's a place of exaltation. And because he sits at God's right hand, he is honored by being there. Now notice, Jesus, within this text, Jesus descended, that is, he descended from heaven, came to this earth, and he ascended back to the Father. Now doesn't that remind you of the end of John chapter 1? The angels descending and ascending. You know, angels are messengers, and that's what that's talking about. And that, that verse is actually a reference to the fact that God sends his messengers to send his will, his word, his instructions to mankind. From heaven to mankind, descended. But also he sends his messengers that he listens to our prayers. And our prayers then rise up before him. Well, Jesus is the one that fulfilled the angels descending and ascending. He fulfilled the fact 
that he brought God's message to us and he makes it possible for our prayers to go back to God. But in another way, he descended to this earth, but he ascended back to heaven. And that's what this verse is actually talking about. Now his exaltation is fulfillment of Psalm 101, which he actually quotes in this particular passage. In Psalm 101, and verse or 110 and verse 1 rather the Lord said unto my Lord set thou on my right hand until I make my uh, thy foes thy footstool and that's a quote from this particular passage and by the way just a little side note there that you realize that Psalm 110 verse 1 is one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament within the New Testament and it is the fact that David said it that's the first part of verse 34, if there's any question, because there are other writers of the book of Psalms. And this was 1,000 years before it took place. 1,000 years. And all of that was for the purpose of showing the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Well, now we get to the last point. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now this is the only logical conclusion. It's really based upon the evidence that Peter gave within the sermon. And I, I really wrestled with the point, should I make it the conclusion or should I make it the fifth point? I mean, you know, really it's the conclusion. And in a sense, it is the fifth point. You see, it is since... Um, since he was approved of God, since he was delivered and put to death, since he was raised from the dead, since he was exalted to the throne of God, then we can be sure he is both Lord and Christ. There is no doubt about it. And it must have been convincing to the listeners on that particular occasion. Now we need to define our terms though. We need to look at what the word Lord means. Well, the, Lord mean, the word Lord means ruler or master. And Jesus is truly the ruler or the master over the universe. There is no one greater than him. He is the master. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And therefore, he is the Lord of the universe. And the word Christ simply means the anointed one. And so he is God's anointed who fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And that's what that's a reference to. And we could go into more detail about it, but I think we better continue on at this particular time. So he was God's anointed. So now they asked, verse number 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now I know the people will ask that question, what shall we do for various reasons? I mean, you might be in a supermarket and you're trying to get some product and, and you're talking to an employee and you say, well, what can I do? What should I do? And, and, but that's not what this question is about, something so mundane or something so, so not so important. And we ask that question for other occasions. But the occasion, remember, that this question was asked is the occasion which earlier we noted back in verse number 21, which is the end of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. 
said that the uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so they said, we want to know what do we need to do in order to be saved? Well, Peter answered that question in verse number 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter was very clear in his answer. Repent, repent means to turn again. But you know, when we think about this, there's really more to it than just simply a change of mind. And the way I like to illustrate it is this way. You're walking in life, God's behind us, and we're walking away from God, and then we have a change of mind, and we think to ourselves, wait a second, I'm walking away from God, I need to make some changes. So we turn from sin. Well, has, is the thought, I need to make some changes, repentance? No, not in the fullest way. So we decide we're going to make some changes and we turn away from sin. Have we completely repented when we just simply turned from sin? No. You see, when we turn completely around and we start walking back toward God, that's true repentance. It includes two turnings, turning from sin and turning to God. Brethren, we all know, and people, good people, good listeners, we all know there are all kinds of people that think that they've repented because they turned to God, but they do not turn from sin. Brethren, if we do not turn from sin, we have not repented. It's just that simple. You know, it's like what I used to hear from old gospel preachers is the, the horse thief is still a horse thief as long as he has the horse. You know, until we repent, until we get rid of that which we've stolen and we've thieved, then we've not repented. Repentance is turning from evil, but it's also turning to God. And we know people that turn from bad things. I mean, I know, I've known a lot of people that have turned from bad things that not, have not turned to God. I know people that have quit smoking. I've known people that have quit drinking. I've known people that have quit cussing. I've known quit people that have quit cheating on their wives or cheating on their husbands. I've known people that, and the list could go on and on, but they have not turned to God. And so repentance, true repentance, is a changed mind that results in the change of turning from sin and turning back to God. And then he said, and be baptized. Hmm. Baptism is a simple act. Have you ever really thought about why baptism is such a, a crucial thing and why the denominational world want to reject it. You know, baptism puts us into Christ. That's what Galatians 3 and verse 27 says. Baptism causes a person to be added to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13. Baptism is God's dividing line. It's the dividing line between being lost in sin and being saved in Christ. It is that dividing line. If Satan can keep you from crossing that dividing line, you're still on his side. That's why it's become such a controversial thing. The denominational world and the sectarian world do not want you to be baptized because they're ruled by Satan. Satan does not want you to be baptized. Baptism adds you to the church. And so it's a very important aspect. 
But notice that baptism was in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, I plan to come back and visit Acts 2 and verse 38 here in a couple of weeks. I think I'm supposed to preach in a couple of weeks on Sunday morning. And I'm going to come back and visit this and speak more about it and break the, the text down a little bit further. But then when they heard what Peter said, notice he went on to say the promise is, is to them. Now, I think it's important for us to note, and I'm not saying one way or the other what this promise is. Most people believe the promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not convinced of that. Now, that was true as far as maybe that particular occasion was concerned, and, and it may be the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you know, I believe that more than likely it's the promise of salvation. That's what they wanted to know. They didn't want to know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't want to know about some mysterious thing that would, would enthrall them or something of that nature or some mysterious thing that some people attribute to the Holy Spirit. No, the promise from Genesis all the way through Malachi is the promise of, of salvation through Christ. And the promise from the book of Romans all the way through the book of Revelation is the promise of salvation through Christ. That's why we call Acts chapter 2 the hub of the Bible. I believe that the exhortation that Peter gave on that particular occasion is the promise is unto you. The promise of salvation is unto you and to your children, to all that are far off. In other words, Jews and Gentiles. That's what that's talking about. To you and to your children, that would be the Jews. To all that are far off, that would be to the Gentiles. And as many as the Lord our God shall call, shall call by the gospel. You see, the promise was for them and for all men. And the promise of salvation is given to all men. And then he also continued with that exhortation. And with many other words did he testify and exhort saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now when I listen to this and I think about what Peter was, was saying on that particular occasion, I can't help but think that Peter was earnest in his, his exhortation. He didn't say, well, won't you get saved? No, that's not the way he would approach this. He would have been adamant. Save yourself from this untoward generation. Brethren, we live in an untoward generation too, just as they did. A corrupt generation. I mean, you talking about a, a nation that has gone haywire. It is a nation that is almost completely out of control and morality is out the window and crime is up. Brethren, save yourselves from this untoward generation. You can be saved. And then you have the result. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I continued it on through verse number 42. And so that was the result of it. Brethren, here's really the point. If we do what they did, the same results will come to pass. Brethren, they became members of the Lord's church. They had salvation. And they had it because they simply did what God said. If we will do what they did, we will have the same results. In other words, 
we will have the salvation and we will be added to the Lord's church. Now, who would not want to be a part of that? And yet thousands and millions of people out there do not want to have a part in it. But you know why that is? Because they want to live for self rather than live for God. They are a part of the wide road that leads to death. And it's an easy road. And they would rather walk the easy road than to walk the narrow, difficult road. But that's not with you. You're here because you desire to walk that narrow road. So we ask, what about you? Do you need to respond to the invitation? Are you right with God? And I realize this lesson was really about those that are not members of the church. But at the same time, the invitation is offered for all men. Whosoever will, let him come. Let him come. If you need the prayers of the church, if you need to become a member of the church, if you need some, some desperate need that you feel within you, if we can help you, won't you come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.